0: Hey, bubs. Welcome back to a brand new episode of Talkin' Snicked, The Wolverine Show. It's the best podcast there is at what it does, and what it does best is tell you about Wolverine. I'm your host, Ryan. Today's episode, we are continuing, well, not so much continuing, but we are building on the theme from May when I stopped podcasting, which was Weapon X and Weapon Plus. Today, we are going to dive into... The return to Weapon X storyline from Ultimate X Men issues seven through twelve. So, Bub's Ultimate X Men is a comic series that ran from two thousand one. It lasted for about a hundred issues with a few crossovers in the wider ultimate imprint for Marvel. Uh, I want to say those hundred issues took about eight or nine years. um, And I actually collected this issue by issue from pretty much the debut up until about issue 75, somewhere around there. I want to say that I stopped reading somewhere around the ultimate cable storyline. But when it came out in 2001, it really Captured my imagination as a 16 year old reader, someone who had grown up with X Men cartoon in the 90s and the X Men movie series had just kicked off. And of course, the first X Men stories that I really read growing up were all different 90s X Men. So when Ultimate X Men came out, it was kind of a way to jump in on a really cool X Men title from the ground floor that if you knew about the history of X-Men up to this point, nearly 40 years of X-Men history, um, it really helped because they were mostly just reimagining those early Claremont stories in the contemporary world, the world of the early aughts. Uh, But you didn't have to have that background knowledge. You didn't need to really know anything about the history of X-Men or mutants or even greater Marvel to appreciate what Ultimate X Men was. Now, the Ultimate line was an imprint at Marvel where they took all these great Marvel heroes and they updated them for the 21st century. Most of them, most of these heroes were portrayed as teenagers as a way to kind of get young readers in. And so I was right at that perfect age where the Ultimate line, especially Ultimate X-Men, really appealed to me as a teenager. Now, I didn't get into Ultimate X-Men right away. Like I said, I started collecting almost from the very beginning. I want to say the first issue I ever got from one of my local comic shops was like number eight. And so from there, I actually went back and collected issues one through seven as floppies. And then, of course, continued on all the way through Like I said, up to about issue 75, I think somewhere around there, not necessarily 75 specifically, but somewhere around there might've been 80, might've been 70, whatever those uh, issues happen to be. Uh, But the reason why I came to ultimate X-Men is because I had actually started collecting ultimate Spider-Man. So on the last issue, the special episode uh, where I talked about Cap Wolf as kind of like my origin into comic book reading and comic book collecting that of course was taken over by an obsession with the X-Men, thanks to the launch of X-Men, the animated series in 1992, uh, that kind of continued on with me up until the Spider-Man cartoon came out. So thanks to CapWolf, I got into reading comics, not necessarily collecting them, like going to the shop weekly, but I started reading comics. I loved them. I enjoyed every time I was able to get to a local comic shop because I was able to grab a couple comics. And then later on that year, the X-Men cartoon launched and that became like the de facto fandom of mine. i had grown out of Ninja Turtles. And even though I liked Power Rangers, it was just kind of like a live action cartoon with some toys. I wasn't nearly as obsessed with Power Rangers as I was with X-Men. And by around 1995, I had moved that obsession from X Men into Spider Man, thanks to the equally awesome Spider Man, the animated series from the 1990s, as well. I had mentioned in the Cap Wolf issue that, uh, excuse me, in the Cap Wolf episode that I had grown up in California. And it was about the very end of 1994 that we moved out to Colorado. And the way that local affiliates, the way that our local Fox affiliate worked is when we moved out here, Saturday mornings did not have an hour or a two hour block of X-Men cartoons like they did in California that I was able to record off the TV and obsess about these mutants. Uh, When I moved out to Colorado, the main Saturday morning block of cartoons actually featured Spider-Man. And it was a lot easier for me to wake up early on a Saturday morning and just watch the TV live rather than recording certain shows at certain times. Uh, When I lived in California, I got out of school at like 2 p.m. When we moved to Colorado, I didn't get out of school until almost 4.15 p.m. So that three to four hour block where Fox would usually play after school cartoons, I was still in school, so I missed it. And that's the time slot that the X-Men cartoon played Uh, here in Colorado. So I started missing all of the X-Men cartoons, but I was able to watch the Spider-Man show. So Spider-Man kind of took over as my main hero, as my favorite hero. And I'm kind of like, as I'm saying this, I'm realizing that man, I was super influenced by what I was able to watch on TV rather than like seeking out the X-Men anyway and setting my VCR. I was just like, eh, whatever. I'm watching cartoons on Saturday. Now it's Spider-Man. So Spider-Man's my favorite. I guess I'm just a lazy fan anyway. Um, so even though I kind of had the shift to being a big Spider-Man fan with the X-Men as kind of being like my secondary characters. I still played like X-Men on Sega and X-Men 2: The Clone Wars on Sega. I still had all my X-Men toys and now I would just, you know, team them up with my Spider-Man toys that I started collecting. So, it's not like the X-Men were completely gone from my mind. And at our uh not our local comic shop because when we first moved to Colorado, there was a comic shop about 15 minutes away from our apartment that we lived in until our house was built. And then when we moved into our house, Uh, by the time that happened, that comic shop actually closed. And because we were new to the area, we had no idea where any other comic shop was. But luckily at our local Safeway, our local grocery store, there was a section that had comic books. And even though I was more of a Spider-Man fan because of the cartoon, I still was able to collect X-Men comics from this grocery store. So obviously, you know, they were just newsstand editions, which nowadays really aren't worth anything. Uh, But I was still able to keep up with my X-Men reading. So as we went throughout the 90s, from the mid 90s up until about 2000, 2001, I was kind of equally a Spider-Man fan and an X-Men fan. And, uh, you know, throughout the 90s, I did manage to actually track down and collect all the individual issues, all the floppies that entailed Age of Apocalypse and Onslaught. Uh, these big storylines from the nineties. I was also able to actually track down issue by issue, the maximum carnage storyline for Spider-Man. Uh, obviously I really loved that because it was a Spider-Man comic, uh, but also because there was another Sega Genesis game that was a huge favorite of mine. That was the maximum carnage game. So uh, again, heavily influenced by you know what I can get my hands on. If there's a Spider-Man game. This is the storyline. So that's what I collected, etc. cetera. That was my fandom of comics in the 90s. I didn't really read a whole lot of DC. Uh, I would love to tell the story of how I really became like a devout DC follower, but that's a different topic for probably a different podcast. Uh, I didn't really, like I said, I didn't really read a whole lot of DC. So like I didn't grow up reading Batman, Superman, any of that stuff. I didn't grow up reading Avengers. I didn't even grow up reading Fantastic Four or Iron Man, despite the fact that there were also cartoons in the 90s for that. Luckily, those were maybe not luckily, but those were actually really bad cartoons. Um they're worth watching if you have Disney Plus just to check them out and see how bad they were, but like there was Iron Man, Fantastic Four, Silver Surfer and I think Incredible Hulk in addition to X-Men and Spider-Man, but there were only two of them that were actually any good and that was X-Men and Spider-Man. So that's what I grew up reading. Although by the late 90s I wasn't really a huge comic book fan like I would get out to the comic shop every now and then our local comic shop was like a 40 minute ride on my bike uh one way uh so I would go very sparingly my parents didn't always have the time to take me to the comic shop my sisters had you know grown up and moved out of the house cuz both of them are about a decade older than I am so you know, when I'm 12, 13 years old, they're like in their early twenties, they've, they've moved out. So I didn't really have the access to get to this comic shop. And even when I did the guy that owned it was kind of a jerk. If you've ever seen Simpsons and you've seen comic book guy, like take comic book guy, add maybe 20 years on. And that was my comic book guy at my local comic shop uh, until I was able to get my driver's license and drive like way across town, almost an hour and a half across town to this really awesome shop. But I didn't have access to that in the late 90s. So X-Men and Spider-Man, when I can get them at the grocery store is kind of what I read. Um, And then on the, the odd trips to the actual local comic shop, which I used to track down Age of Apocalypse, Onslaught, and Maximum Carnage. Now, going into the year 2000, I was 15 years old. My parents had gone through a divorce. And my mom actually moved out of state. So I stayed here with my dad and my mom would send, you know, like little care packages and stuff on the various holidays. And, uh, by the, by Easter of 2001, my mom had sent an Easter basket to me from wherever she was living at the time. I want to say she, at that time she was living in California. We were still here in Colorado but you know, she liked to go out of her way to send me Valentine's day stuff and Easter stuff and that sort of stuff just to remind me that she cared. And knowing that I was a huge Spider-Man fan, my mom had actually sent me an Easter basket that was like a Spider-Man Easter basket. So it was like a bunch of candy that had Spider-Man on it. And like, uh, inside this Easter basket was a comic book that had like three issues in one. So not like a full trade paperback, Uh, but not really anything that's like a collector's item or anything, just like a floppy that had three issues. And it happened to have ultimate Spider-Man one, two, and three. So I'm 16 years old by this point and not super huge into comics really anymore. Like by this point I had moved on to like magic, the gathering and PS one, uh, final fantasy seven and eight pretty much took up all of my time. If I wasn't at school. And so, uh, I didn't really know what to make of it, but I was like, Hey, I'm going to check out this comic. I'm going to read this comic. And like, I immediately identified with ultimate Peter Parker. He was also like a 16 year old kid, kind of an outsider. Uh, he didn't really have any friends. Most of my friends, uh, <laughs> at this point in my life, I'd gotten into some legal trouble for something that I had done with my friends And kind of realized that the friends I had at the time weren't necessarily the best influence on me, and vice versa. I wasn't the best influence on them either. Uh, All of us came from like broken homes. All of us had like parents that were divorced or divorcing. And so we were all kind of just angry uh, and, you know, rebels without a cause kind of a thing. Um, And so I kind of realized at this point, like, maybe I shouldn't be hanging out with this group of people. And so we went our separate ways. So here I was, like, divorced parents. Peter was an orphan, didn't really have any friends except for like the one close personal friend that you grew up with. My next door neighbor was a couple years younger than me, but like he actually moved to Colorado like a month after I moved to Colorado and, uh, you know, we, we just kind of bonded. And so we were really close friends, but like my other group of friends, I didn't really have one anymore. So I just like identified with Peter right away. Of course, I already love Spider-Man from the cartoon. And the video games and whatnot. So, Ultimate Spider-Man like really jumped out at me, and it was really what got me back into comics. Now, it didn't necessarily get me back into hitting up my LCS every week, but we did have a bookstore not too far away from our house. We had a, both a Barnes and Noble and a Borders, uh, and so between the two of those, I was usually able to find certain storylines that I wanted in the form of trade paperbacks. And after reading this little floppy that had issues one through three of ultimate Spider-Man. I decided I wanted to go to the bookstore and track down the rest of the story in trade paperback form. So I was able to actually find ultimate Spider-Man volume one and volume two. I read both of them, loved them. And it was at that point that I decided to start going to the comic shops because now I had caught up to the monthly issues. So I started going to comic shops, making time, you know, begging my sisters to take me. Uh, I had a couple of friends at this point now that had driver's licenses that also liked comics. So I finally had like access to get to a shop pretty regularly. And I began collecting uh, ultimate Spider-Man as it was coming out. I think my the first issue of ultimate Spider-Man I ever got at a shop was like number 17. And I eventually went back and uh, I think I ended up getting, I think I was able to track down issues, issue number one, and then all the way back to like issue five. So I still don't have like two, three, and four, but I had five all the way up through 17. So I was able to catch up. Uh, and it was at that time that I was going to the store. I was collecting ultimate Spider-Man that I found out that there was another title that launched um, a few months after that was called ultimate X-Men. And I, like I said, I think the first issue I got was like number eight or number nine, something somewhere around there. And I was able to then go to the bookstore and also track down volume one, which had the first six issues. And so I was mostly caught up on Ultimate X-Men as well. Um, And I actually ended up growing to prefer Ultimate X-Men to Ultimate Spider-Man, I think just because I loved the X-Men. And when it it really came down to it and I had two, I had X-Men and Spider-Man like at the top of their game and I actually was able to choose one or the other, then I was able to go with X-Men. And it didn't hurt that uh, by 2001, the X-Men movie had already come out since that one came out in 2000. Whereas the first Spider-Man movie uh, wasn't to come out for like another year. So I had the live action X-Men movie. I had all the X-Men cartoons that I'd recorded off the TV and a couple of VHS tapes. So I kind of had like the X-Men at this point kind of had like the upper hand on Spider-Man and I was able to switch back (laughs) to being an X-Men fan with like Wolverine kind of cementing his place as my number one hero. Something that continues to this day, you know, I still consider Wolverine to be my favorite Marvel superhero, regardless of the medium or anything. Just if I had to pick a Marvel superhero, it's Wolverine. Ironically, I don't think I would say that Wolverine is my favorite X-Man. Uh, my favorite X-Man has to be Nightcrawler. Um, So favorite X-Men Nightcrawler, but my favorite Marvel superhero overall has got to be Wolverine. So that's kind of the story of how I came to Ultimate X-Men. And uh, I ended up continuing on with uh, Ultimate Spider-Man, collected it almost up to issue 100 before I just kind of lost interest, kind of got over my fandom of Brian Michael Bendis nothing negative to say about him, but I just kind of grew out of enjoying his writing style. Took about a hundred issues of Ultimate Spider-Man before I was like, I cannot read about teenagers anymore. Of course it didn't hurt that uh, by this time it was like 2005 or six. And I was like now firmly in my early twenties and, uh, kind of seen my tastes mature as a comic reader. Uh, by that point I was introduced to DC and writers like Mark Wade and, and Jeff Loeb and stuff like that. And I was like, all right, I, I kind of like the late nineties style, not so much the Brian Bendis talking head style that he does. Uh, but Ultimate X-Men was written by a different writer. Ultimate X-Men started as a comic from Mark Miller. Uh, this was really my first introduction to Mark Miller as a writer and someone who I still adored to this day. Um, I don't actually read any of his uh, Miller World stuff, but uh, all of his Marvel stuff and all of his DC stuff, a uh, huge fan. So before I jump into ultimate X-Men seven through 12, I did want to talk a little bit about the X-Men movie, not story-wise or anything like that. Just that, uh, with that movie coming out in 2000, when I was 15, I don't think it could have come at a better time. Like I said, in the late 90s, I did manage to track down some of my favorite X-Men storylines, as well as just random issues from Claremont's run. And uh, I had a friend that was also a big comic book collector. And so for the most part, I had kept up pretty much since the uh, Age of Apocalypse story all the way up to uh, the the all new, all different, or I guess just the new X-Men from when Grant Morrison took over in 2000. So when Grant Morrison took over in 2000, I, I was not a fan. I did not like his run. I did not like the things that he did. Um, there was a lot of paradigm shifts within X-Men comics and I just did not enjoy them. And so I kind of, at that point stopped reading X-Men other than uh, when I started reading X Men in two thousand one, but knowing that uh, Chris Claremont up to that point was still considered the best X Men writer of all time, and I something that I still agree with even to this day, all the way here in two thousand twenty one, I would still say that uh, Chris Claremont is the de facto definitive X Men writer, uh, but. In 2000, when the movie came out, Wizard Magazine also dropped this huge X-Men only issue of Wizard, where it ranked certain storylines, it ranked certain characters, it highlighted all the best stuff from the Claremont era, including uh, stuff that was written by like Louise Simonson on New Mutants and X-Factor, but it kind of chronicled everything that happened in Uncanny X-Men and then X-Men when it launched. Wolverine, Excalibur, all the different stuff other than like some of the, the non Claremont, like miniseries, like fallen angels and stuff like that. Didn't really talk much about those sort of storylines, but it did talk about almost everything that uh, Claremont had done up to that point. So even though I'd kind of stopped collecting X-Men right before ultimate X-Men came out, I was still going back and buying trades. I bought the trade for Days of future past, and I bought the trade for Dark Phoenix. Um, and I think at this point they were also doing like the essential X-Men, which were just these massive uh paperback trades that collected like 50 issues of X-Men at a time. Uh, but it was black and white, it was like newsstand or like you know, a uh, newsprint was like the type of paper. So even though I was kind of reading those and and mostly just like thumbing through those for like the greatest hits, I, I wasn't really buying those and collecting those. I was, I was mostly just getting stuff that was in color and all that. Um, so I was still pretty familiar with X-Men going into the movie. And obviously the movie is very different. Uh, you know, you have like the five original X-Men in the movie in this case would be like Cyclops and Jean and Storm with like Wolverine and Rogue as the, as the five X-Men that you kind of get, um, as like the first X-Men team, really. I mean, obviously we know that canonically in the movie continuity, that's not the case. There's a whole other thing. Uh, but for the, the, for the 2000 movie, that was kind of what we got. You know, we got these five X-Men, uh, where you had like four adults and a kid and it was kind of weird and it didn't really make sense. Uh, but I mean, that's kind of one thing I've always liked about the movies is. they don't necessarily follow the comics. And I know that's weird to say. Most people seem to prefer their X-Men movies to just follow along with the X-Men comics. And if a character isn't exactly like they show up in the comics, then, you know, it's the worst version you can possibly have. I was never like that. Like, I actually kind of like the fact that the X-Men movies gave us this like somewhat eclectic team and it didn't really fit in. And some of the times the stuff didn't really make sense because going back and reading Claremont's run all the various retcons and not necessarily reboots, but just all the weird soap opera stuff that he puts in there, all the weird drama where it kind of doesn't really make sense. And it's somewhat of a mess. Like that's always what I liked about the movies is that they kind of had that same feel. Apparently that's not what people like nowadays. And I actually forget the point that I was trying to make bringing up the movies. Oh, right. So, um, It came out in 2000. I was 15 years old. And, um, at the time I had never seen a movie in theaters more than like once or twice. Um, I think I saw Jurassic park three times when I was eight in in 1993 when it came out. Um, and I hadn't seen another movie more than, than twice in theaters up till X-Men and X-Men. I saw 14 times in theaters. Like it was, It came out right before school ended. So like I saw it that first weekend with my sister and then I saw it later on that weekend with a couple friends of mine. And then I just kept seeing it. I think I saw it like two or three times with my sister, a bunch of times with my friends. I even went a few times alone just because the movie theater was like a 10 minute bus ride from my house and the bus ticket was 25 cents. So if I woke up and like none of my friends were around or I didn't have anything to do, I just grab a quarter uh, and a couple bucks, and I just head down to the movie theater and I'd see X-Men. So I just loved this movie when it came out. Um, <laughs> obviously, uh, loved it quite a bit. Uh, if I saw it that many times without getting bored. Um, but by the time that X-2 came out in 2003, um, I had gone back. You know, I'd been reading Ultimate X-Men by then. Uh, we weren't quite at the part, you know, in time, the point in time where. Uh, Whedon took over on astonishing yet. So I hadn't yet returned to any of the major X books that were happening in the, in the main continuity, but I had managed to go back and read a lot, a lot more from the Claremont era and even some of the stuff from like the early nineties from before uh, the age of apocalypse. Um, and that opening sequence in X2 with nightcrawler at the white house is still like one of my top three scenes in all of the X-Men movies other than I think maybe the, um, the bar scene in Argentina with uh, Magneto in, I think that's first class. And then the, uh, the first Quicksilver scene in days of future past, like those are probably my three favorite, like action sequences in all the X-Men movies. And that sequence actually made me think of the return to weapon X storyline. Now I know that X Two X-Men United, you know, you got striker in there and striker wants to like kill all the mutants and stuff. Uh, and everyone, I was always like, Oh yeah, you know, this big influence on this, on this particular movie is the, the one shot story. God loves man kills by Chris Claremont. But I don't quite see it exactly like that. It's actually a lot more different to that storyline than people seem to realize. Like other than the fact that you got striker in there and then he hates mutants, there's not really any kind of in the movie, at least there's not really any kind of like public stuff going on. Uh, the part, you know, the whole thing about God loves man kills is there's actually a lot of Commentary on political and social views, and I don't really get that in X2. X2 actually reminds me a lot more of Return to Weapon X, and you're about to see why because we're going to go through not necessarily issue by issue, panel by panel, but we are going to go through like issue by issue, event by event, or scene by scene, um, and you'll actually see that like Return to Weapon X in ultimate X-Men is actually a lot more close to um, X2 X-Men United, which in my opinion is still one of, if not the best X-Men movie. Now I think that uh, conventional wisdom says that days of future past is the best X-Men movie of all of the X-Men movies. Um, and I'd probably agree with that, but I still think that like X2 holds up a lot better than even like first class. Uh, it holds up better than one and three. It holds up better than X-Men origins Wolverine. Um, it might even hold up better than the Wolverine. It's, it's gotta be in the top like three or four, if not top two of, of X-Men movies as far as how good they are. And, and to me, it's just, it's so much more like return to weapon X. So I think I've built it up enough. Let's jump into ultimate X-Men seven through 12 return to weapon X. (laughs) All right. Ultimate X-Men 7 through 12. Return to Weapon X was written by Mark Miller. We have pencils from Adam Kubert. We have colors from Richard Isenov. We have inks from Art t and Joe Kubert in the, it looks like the last issue and or the last two issues. Uh, and then we have letters from Richard Starkings and Comicraft. We also had a guest penciler, pencil a few sequences in uh, number 12. And so when we get there, I'll go ahead and make sure to throw his name out here as well. So this was the second volume of ultimate X-Men after the events of the first volume, which saw the formation of the X-Men, which I loved the uh, ultimate X-Men original five. You have Cyclops, Gene, and Beast, but then you have Colossus and Storm, rounding out the five original X-Men, which I really liked. There's an extra, you know, you got two women instead of just one, and then you got Cyclops, Beast, and Colossus. So uh, two of my favorite X-Men of all time, Storm and Colossus, were then added to, um, in my opinion, like the top three of the original five. So they add them in there. And by the end of that first arc, they also saw the addition of Wolverine to the team and Iceman. So you actually really had like the seven original X-Men, which was four of the originals and then like probably the top three from the uh, all new, all different, you know, giant size X-Men era, not including Nightcrawler. And they went up against the original Brotherhood led by Magneto and consisting of the same four from the original Brotherhood, which is Quicksilver, Scarlet Witch, Toad and Mastermind. And then of course, newcomer to the Brotherhood in Blob. So as a fun story arc is actually a really great story arc. The first kind of villains you're introduced to are the Sentinels, which actually allows the um, opposing viewpoints between Xavier and Magneto to kind of come to the forefront. And then of course it culminates in this giant showdown between the two teams. And it leads to Magneto actually trying to like take over the world uh, by holding the world ransom um, and like going to the White House. So it's actually like this really action packed and it kind of adapted like the first four or five appearances of Magneto and the brotherhood from like the Stan Lee, Jack Kirby days, uh, you know, with the first issue of X-Men itself having to deal with Magneto trying to like hijack these missiles and then trying to take over the sovereignty of this Island using the brotherhood team and having the X-Men and the brotherhood showdown with them, uh, eventually leading to Magneto, like losing his mind, I think before, like the beyonder or the other, I I forget who it was the stranger. Actually, I think it was where the stranger like comes and takes Magneto and that's the end of him for a long time. Um, so I actually really enjoyed the first arc, but I feel like the second arc just nails it. Like everything that I loved about the Ultimate X Men Volume One that kind of seemed gimmicky, like Mark Miller and Adam Kubert like double down and they're like, "Hey, hey, no, no, no!" All that stuff that you liked, that wasn't just flash in the pan. That is, like, that's the lifeblood of what Ultimate X Men is going to be moving forward. It's going to be a lot of action. There's going to be a lot of witty dialogue between all these teenagers. There's going to be tons of angst, and it's just, it's going to read like Claremont dialed up to eleven. and And that's what they do. And Return to Weapon X, like I said just nails that. So I mentioned, I'm not going to go page by page issue by issue, but I am going to go through this opening scene of number seven page by page because, well, this is probably my favorite sequence in any ultimate X-Men issue. And and you're about to find out why. So I mentioned that one of my favorite, one of my top three scenes in all the X-Men movies is the beginning sequence of X2 that has Nightcrawler infiltrating the White House. Now, I feel like up to this point, people loved Nightcrawler for his personality. They loved Nightcrawler for his wit, his, maybe not his sense of style, but like just the way he talked and the way he behaved, the way he acted. He was just so suave. And and despite the fact that his outward appearance was rather devilish and everything, he was a prankster. He was a trickster. Uh, He had a pretty cool power, but it never really was like on display in any kind of like offensive manner, even throughout like the Claremont run um, and even Claremont's run on like Excalibur where Nightcrawler kind of stepped into like a leadership role. Like we got to see Nightcrawler always being like the suave, sensitive guy who would kind of disguise his pain from the way he was treated due to his outward appearance by like just this really fun, loving personality. And I think that endeared... Nightcrawler to so many people myself included but the reason why i liked that scene at the beginning of x2 is like it really kind of showed off that like hey if nightcrawler wants to fight and be awesome he totally can and it makes sense you know here's a guy who's this circus level acrobat uh who is you know is very strong despite the fact that he's not this big bruiser like colossus or something and he has this really cool ability to teleport and there's a lot of really fun visual things to do with it and X2 nailed that. Like they got that down and made like you immediately took notice of Nightcrawler. You're like, wow, Nightcrawler is awesome. And they do the exact same thing in return to weapon X. Return to weapon X starts off at a weapon X facility in Finland. And all you see is like in the mountains in Finland, you know, the snow capped peaks and all these evergreen trees that are just covered in snow is this really unforgiving yet unassuming base. It just looks like this big concrete structure, the kind of structure you would expect a government facility, especially a top secret one to look. It would just be this like very bland, boring building with like no windows and stuff. And there'd be this huge chain link fence with barbed wire around it. Well, that's what we get. We see this building and there's all these lights kind of flashing. And I love this first, the, so the first, four, I guess that would be the first eight pages. Each one is like a double page spread. So it's like four pages, uh, but each one is double page. So it's eight pages. And so you have this, like a really wide shot of this base. And then it cuts down to the next line that gives us these four, like fairly tight panels. Uh, there's like an alarm going off and then there's people running out of this base then we see that like, there's people that have dogs, uh, and there's like people getting on like I almost, I almost said jet skis, but like snowmobiles. And then we get another really wide panel. And it's like in the foreground, in the shadow is a character who we know is nightcrawler. Cause we could tell he's got the prehensile tail, one of his arms, uh, his hand only has three fingers. You see one of his feet that only has three toes, two in front, one in the back. Uh, so we see this. And then like in the background, just completely lit up and light is like hundreds of, snowmobiles and people on foot. There's helicopters. There's like these big Arctic kind of like snow cat looking vehicles and stuff. And it's clear that this person in the foreground is like running away. There's some sort of like a jail break or a prison break. And these people are in pursuit. They actually start shooting. One of the guys on the snowmobiles gets close enough. He starts shooting towards Nightcrawler who then teleports away. It takes us into the next page. We actually find out that what Nightcrawler did was he teleported onto the snowmobile and like knocked this soldier guy off the snowmobile grabbed his gun starts firing at the his pursuers jumps onto the snowmobile and like takes off with the rest of the people who are still alive because there's tons of them i'm like in hot pursuit we also get to see a man with like a mustache and a beard and glasses who looks an awful lot like dr cornelius from the Barry Windsor Smith weapon X series. Uh, and I think at one point they do refer to him as Dr. Cornelius. So I, I just love that. It's like, all right, we're getting weapon. It's ultimate weapon X. So naturally Dr. Cornelius has to be there. Cause he was one of the main guys in the Barry Windsor Smith weapon X, like number two in charge. Uh, the only person above him was like professor Thornton. So, He gets to like this cliff while he's on this snowmobile and he just launches off this cliff and he's about halfway down this like giant chasm isn't really the right word, but like just in this free fall and he's like halfway down this thing and he teleports himself and the snowmobile across the way, like this big giant Canyon and he teleports himself over there and it's like, all right, cool. It looks like Nightcrawler is going to escape. I also want to point out that ultimate nightcrawler doesn't have blue fur. He has black fur and he looks awesome. He, he only has like cargo pants on like military cargo pants, obviously with no boots or anything. Cause he's got his feet, he's got his tail hanging out and then he actually isn't closed from like the top up. So you just have like this black fur and everything. And he's like really lean and all that on his like right forearm. He seems to have this like glowing tattoo that says, um, X three, Yeah. X three. And then, uh, when his eyes are open and when his mouth is open, he has like this cool, like yellowish gold, like glow to it. So very cool. It's very visually different. I mean, obviously nightcrawler in normal comics has the yellow eyes, but he doesn't have like a mouth or like nostrils that glow or anything, just his eyes. Um, and they kind of, and they make nightcrawler have like black fur instead of the blue fur, because I guess it, blends into the shadows more, which makes sense with his, with his powers. So anyway, Nightcrawler manages to teleport across this huge Canyon thing with the snowmobile in tow. And unfortunately for him, you know, even though it looks like he's escaped and no one else can follow him, whoever he's running from, which, I mean, I'm just going to tell you it's weapon X, um, uh, weapon X still has like some helicopters and stuff, all of these weapons and vehicles and everything that they have, like totally remind me of GI Joe as well, which was a huge draw for me. I loved GI Joe as a kid. Uh, so seeing all these like cool, like one man helicopters and stuff and like snowmobiles that are all armored and everything looking like GI Joe, that was a huge plus. Anyway, one of these helicopters actually kind of catches up to him and they're hovering right above him. And there's like a sharpshooter in the helicopter who manages to shoot nightcrawler right in the shoulder with a tranquilizer dart. It knocks him off the snowmobile and he starts passing out. And the guy who shot him with the trunk, the helicopter lands and he gets out and he walks up to him. And you see this, just this guy, he's got like this big cigar that he's smoking. He's got these three scars that are going like horizontally across his face. So like right across the bridge of his nose and then like the tip of his nose and then like his upper lip, like he was slashed with three claws, across the face at some point we can assume it's nightcrawler since nightcrawler has three hands or three hands, three fingers on each hand, but we don't necessarily know where he got that scar and he's able to, uh, to capture nightcrawler and incapacitate him. Like obviously nightcrawler has been hit with a tranquilizer. So he's like slowly going to sleep and all that, but just for good measure, this guy makes sure to knock nightcrawler out. And we find out that his name is he's like agent John Wraith. So again, another name from the normal weapon X series, uh, John Wraith was one of the guys who, well, there was a guy named Wraith who is also known as Kestrel, who was actually like a teleporting mutant in the, um, Larry Hama, like return to weapon X storyline. So a little bit different, but still pretty close. Um, only in this case, you know, Wraith is, as a villain who doesn't have any kind of mutant powers. And the, the camera, if, if you will, kind of pans out to the guy's shoulder. And we can actually see that he has a patch on his shoulder that says SHIELD. And it's basically this, the SHIELD logo. And that introduces our antagonist for this story. It introduces us to Weapon X, who is part of SHIELD. Now, the storyline is called Return to Weapon X, and I had mentioned that in Volume 1 of Ultimate X-Men, Wolverine eventually joins the team. When Wolverine is first introduced in Volume 1, he's actually in the Savage Land working for Magneto, and Magneto sends him to the X-Men, to the United States to join the X-Men to be like his mole. Um, And when Wolverine first gets to the US, he's actually taken into custody by Weapon X. And so the reason he joins the X-Men is because Xavier sends the X-Men to go rescue Wolverine from Weapon X. And so this storyline is their return to Weapon X. But I just wanted to throw that out there. Like at this point, we already know that Weapon X exists. I don't think that we knew that they were part of S.H.I.E.L.D. until this point. So obviously in the Ultimate Universe, at least up through this storyline, S.H.I.E.L.D. is maybe a little shadier than the shield that we've come to expect in 616 and even the shield that we've seen in the MCU. And that covers like the first opening sequence, which I just I love that sequence and you can see already why I'm kind of saying that yeah, sure X2 was heavily influenced by God Loves Man Kills. I'm not saying that it wasn't, but like reading Return to Weapon X, I definitely see the through line in this story a lot more clearly than I do in God loves man kills. And here's why after that scene ends, after we have this, this epic nightcrawler escape, which is obviously a little bit different in this case, he's escaping in the movie. He's infiltrating, but still the same thing. We get to see how awesome he can be, how offensive his powers can be if applied correctly. And we just get to see him being awesome. And again, like no, no dialogue or anything like Nightcrawler doesn't talk in the opening of X2 and Nightcrawler is completely silent in the opening of Return to Weapon X as well. And so the very next scene that we, that we go to, this is the uh, credit page that has, you know, writer, pencils, inks, colors, letters, all the editors, all the way up through the president of Marvel at the time gives us the name of the storyline, Return to Weapon X and we already are taken to what appears to be a derelict run down base somewhere in the middle of some desert. And at this base all by himself is just a man in a cowboy hat. And of course, turning the page, we see that this man is Wolverine. Wolverine is trying to track down his past. He's trying to piece together the parts of his past that are missing from his memory he is telepathically communicating with Professor Xavier, you know, a world away, at least, you know, a continent away. Uh, if it, if if Logan is in the desert in the U.S., it's obviously somewhere in the Southwest. Of course, we know that Xavier is back home in New York. So at the very least, they're communicating across country telepathically, which is awesome. You know, the, the power that the characters have in Ultimate X-Men, they're definitely not nerfed. The first like five arcs, six arcs, all the way up through like 35 before Mark Miller leaves the book, a lot of the ultimate X-Men, despite the fact that like they're teenagers who are just getting their powers, mostly are like ridiculously overpowered, but I'm cool with it because, you know, I was a teenager when I was reading this and I was like, I just want awesome, powerful X-Men. So it was cool to see how powerful the ultimate X-Men were compared to like their film counterparts who were actually pretty nerfed. Anyway, that's really <laughs> that's neither here nor there. So, going back to the story, we have Wolverine kind of walking through this abandoned weapon X facility. And again, the second scene in X2, it's the Nightcrawler scene and then it cuts to the Wolverine scene where he's at Alkali Lake and then from there it finally cuts to the X-Men and they're not even doing an X-Men thing. They're just doing kind of a school thing, which is sort of what we get here. You know, we have this, this, this back and forth between Wolverine and Xavier where Wolverine kind of explains to Xavier, he doesn't remember his past. All he knows is that he had to do a lot of terrible stuff. And even though he doesn't remember things, he definitely has memories and none of them are good. Charles Xavier at one point says something like, you know, what kind of memories do you have? And Logan just responds like bad ones, Charlie boy the only kind of memories I got left. Uh, And then from there, we cut to the X-Men. We actually cut to Jean Grey using her powers telepathically, similar to X Two. Do you see where I'm going? I'm not going to bring this up every scene, but I'm just saying like already we're three scenes into this story, three scenes into X-2. uh, Definitely a lot more in common. Uh, This version of Jean Grey, just like the film version of Jean Grey, is not only a very strong telekinetic and a very strong telepath, but also a medical doctor. And in this scene, she's just doing a routine checkup for Hank McCoy, who had actually gotten injured. He had like a car dropped on him uh, in volume one. And so at this point, we're kind of picking up where we left off with Henry, which in this case is he's recovering from injury. And of course, Jean Grey is the resident doctor. Next up, we actually skip to a few more X-Men scenes. This one is actually a scene with uh, (laughs) X-Men, X-Men, with Cyclops, Colossus, and Beast. They are in Tokyo for a talk show. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things where we've seen so far through six and a half issues how the United States has dealt with mutants, but we haven't really seen how mutants are dealt with on the international stage. And this one shows us that At the very least, in Japan, mutants aren't feared and hated. They're actually embraced as the next cool thing. Um, I think at one point Storm even, or I think it's Colossus is telling Storm that, you know, Japan has always kind of been on the cutting edge, whether it's the cutting edge of technology or the cutting edge of fashion. Um, and in this case, they are on the cutting edge of genetics. Like They know that genetic mutation is an inevitability for the human race. And rather than hate it and fear it, they embrace it as the next step. And so that's why we see such a warm welcome for the X-Men. And for mutants in general in Japan, it actually gives the X-Men a bit of renown and a celebrity status on an international level. So much so that after their talk show appearance, while the X-Men are leaving, they're going through like a crowded pavilion on the way to the X-Jet. And we see, I really like this, this one page. I'm just going to kind of describe it. It's like a one panel page, a splash page of like just this pavilion, just crowded pavilion. And then we get all these little inset panels that kind of tell the story of what's happening. In the greater part of the scene, we kind of see the X-Men moving through the crowd, and there's this hooded figure who's kind of looming up through the crowd. She walks up next to the X-Men, she takes a glove off, she touches Colossus, and the issue kind of ends with Storm noticing that like Colossus isn't as shiny as he usually is. It cuts to a scene with John Wraith back at the Weapon X base in Finland, and he's talking via radio to who is revealed to be rogue. And she says, yeah, I got all the information where they live, you know, what their schedule is. I even know what brand of toilet paper they use. And he's like, great, you know, good job. And not as nice as that. Obviously he's a bad guy. And the way Mark Miller draws bad guys is bad guys are pretty bad. Like most of these villains in them, in these Mark Miller books are like mustache twirling bad guys where they're just bad for the sake of being bad. Uh, There's a couple exchanges here between Wraith and Rogue that I don't really need to go into, uh, but it's not very nice stuff. So we kind of get the feeling that like Rogue at the very least and whatever other mutants are working for Weapon X, similar to Wolverine as well, they're not really working for Weapon X by choice. It is not an ideal situation for these mutants who are with Weapon X. And that ends the first issue. I'm not actually going to go uh, issue by issue, or I guess I'm not going to go panel by panel for the next few issues. Uh, Part two of this story continues in Ultimate X-Men number eight, the first scene of which is a scene with Wolverine and Cyclops as they um, are kind of making their way through this like seedy underworld area somewhere in New York um and we eventually learn that it's like the headquarters of the local chapter of the Bratva the Russian mafia who in the ultimate universe Colossus before joining the X-Men was like a teenage enforcer for the mafia because of his awesome mutant ability um obviously in the ultimate universe Peter didn't become a mutant in you know communist Russia where he felt like his mutant powers belonged to the state and that sort of thing. Um, this is very much a Russia that is, you know, after the fall of communism, that's kind of, I don't want to say taken over by the Bratva cause that's not entirely accurate, but at least mm-hmm. this version of Colossus probably came from, you know, poverty. His family ran a small farm on the, what is it? The Ust-Ordinsky province in the, like in the present day Ukraine, um, just south or just west of the Ural mountains. I'm, I'm sure I'm butchering all of this stuff because I'm not a, a Russia expert or USSR expert or anything. Uh, but that's kind of his backstory in the 616, right? He worked on this farm. It was a collective. It was, you know, for the greater good of the state. It was all about communism. And in this version, you know, it came out in the year 2000. So Colossus was, you know, 19 years old, give or take. So he's only a few years older than me. So he was probably around 10 years old when the the uh, Berlin Wall fell and then a couple years after that you know he might have been a teenager right when the USSR crumbled and all of the various states that had belonged to the USSR kind of gained independence from one another so a lot different situations so it's not that out of far out of the realm of possibility that this version of Colossus actually grew up possibly with some ties to the Broadville. You know, you're in poverty and you don't really have any other ways out. You kind of go where the money's going to get you. And in that case, it was the Russian mafia. So this opening sequence is Wolverine and Cyclops kind of just doing a solid to one of their fellow team members, one of their fellow mutants going down to this like low level enforcer who's in charge of Colossus and pretty much just like telling them that they made him an offer he can't refuse. They they kind of walked in. Wolverine flashed his claws and was like, "Look, you're gonna let Peter go, or we're gonna have a problem." And that was the opening scene. And I re- I just really liked that scene because this isn't the kind of stuff that we got in the Claremont run. And it's not to say that the Claremont run was black and white and everything was hunky dory and there wasn't any kind of darkness to his stories because there very much was. Uh, but these kind of stories with like the mafia and these enforcers and just the X Men who aren't always necessarily heroes. It's almost like the entire team of ultimate X-Men are all anti-heroes, not just Wolverine, not just cable or Gambit or whoever, but like the entire roster, they all have storylines that kind of put them on these uh, morally dubious paths. And in this case, you know, we actually have Cyclops going along with it and being like, yeah, you come after Pete and like, we'll we'll do to you what you usually do to people who don't pay you that sort of thing. Uh, So it's just fun to kind of get such a different take on these characters. The next scene is a scene with Storm who is kind of coming out of her shell. You know, she's finally comfortable with her powers and she's been experimenting with her powers very different from the 616 Storm, who by the time she joined the X-Men was already an expert in her powers. This Storm is very much different. She actually comes from she's a thief, but she comes from the streets of like Houston rather than the streets of Cairo. Uh, And uh, so she also is pretty dubious, uh, uh, but up to this point, you know, she's finally starting to explore with her powers and kind of embrace the fact that she is in fact this, you know, weather goddess. Um, And she also happens to be in a relationship with Beast. And so we actually start to see uh, the beginnings of that relationship as they move forward in this next scene, she's like flying around and then she lands and Beast is like, all right, now that you've done, you know, now that you're done playing with your, mutant powers, it's time to uh, get to our lesson. And she's like, can't we just make out? So that's kind of what happens. It takes us to the next scene where um, after the events of volume one, Iceman goes back home, stays with his parents for a little while. It turns out he actually gets a girlfriend and he pretty much tells her all of the intimate details about the X-Men. Um, kind of like how Rogue just got it from Cyclops or Colossus, but no one knows that, but they do know that Iceman kind of spilled the beans on all of their secrets. And again, we see the X-Men doing some morally dubious things. Jean Grey and Xavier have like a telepathic conversation about the ethical implications of mind wiping Bobby. And eventually they decide, well, for the greater good, we have to erase his memory of this girl. And we should probably also erase that girl's memories too, of all of the stuff that he told her. And so they they go about doing that. And it takes us to our final scene of part two, which is the X-Men are attacked at the Xavier mansion by Weapon X. Sound familiar? Yes, because that's the plot of X2. So that takes us, I mean, I can go through the details and and describe the scene. Um, It's very fast. I mean, it's like 10 pages, so it's like half the issue. So for one scene, you got to think one scene, 10 pages, half the issue, like that's a big scene. And it all happens pretty quickly. Like page by page by page, each member of the X-Men is taken down and they use, uh, all these various other mutants. Like we see Nightcrawler again, we see Rogue again, but we're also introduced to two other mutants who at this point are working with Weapon X. We are introduced to the ultimate version of Juggernaut. Now, just like the movie version that we saw in X3, and even the movie version that we saw in Deadpool 2, this version of Juggernaut is also a mutant um, with no relation whatsoever to Charles Xavier, but his powers are still the same. If he's moving, nothing can stop him, and he still wears like the big dumb helmet. But just like the movie version, he's he's not wearing like a shirt or anything. It's just like This helmet, which basically makes his head a battering ram, and then the rest of his body, so that you can see all of his big rippling muscles. And then we're introduced to the final member of the Mutant Weapon X team, and that is Sabertooth. And honestly, this Sabertooth really isn't any different from 616 Sabertooth or really any other version of Sabertooth we get. He might be a little bit more talkative and a lot less witty, so a little bit more dimwitted, but he still serves the same purpose. He's still just this sadistic evil murder machine. And he is apparently working for weapon X by choice. So that takes us into part three. Oh, you know what? I actually forgot to mention after, after the Wolverine Cyclops scene, Wolverine and Cyclops have a conversation where Wolverine's like, look, all the fallout with Jean from the last volume. I'm not going to get into that. Uh, it it didn't go over well and I'm going to leave the team and I'm going to continue going on uh, you know, on my path to figure out what, you know, where my past leads me. So this opening scene was actually like a prequel to this story. Uh, so at this point we actually have like Wolverine telling Cyclops he's leaving, which sets the stage for the Wolverine scene that we had in part one, which was him at the weapon X facility in the desert. All right. Yeah. I forgot to mention that. So the X-Men are taken captive minus Wolverine, which has Wraith really mad. And that leads us into part three, which is ultimate X-Men number nine. Now, this one was kind of weird because the first like eight pages or nine pages of this story is like a Nick Fury interlude where we actually see Nick Fury at some weird place in Delhi. And he is like super spy extraordinaire. And he's infiltrating whatever this facility is. And he's got like this, he's wearing like a white suit, very demon looking, very James Bondian. And he has all this technology built into his suit and he has like a calm in his ear that he's talking to his base. And he's like, all right, make me go intangible. Okay. Turn me invisible. Okay. Turn me bulletproof. That sort of thing. Um, Anyway, he eventually infiltrates all the way to this like inner sanctum of this base and all we see is like off panel there's this big bright light that's like shining on him and he's like uh-oh and like his and then the interlude ends. So at this point we don't really know how it plays in uh how it ties into anything but it was like a large part of this issue was this Nick Fury interlude. Uh, I think at this point too the Ultimates series hadn't begun which was also written by Mark Miller and was the ultimate version of the Avengers. So after that, we kind of have this little montage scene where the X-Men are being experimented on. They're starting to become like indoctrinated and brainwashed by uh, the Weapon X program, except for like the top two guys, Cyclops and Gene are still like kind of resisting and they're trying to like formulate a plan of escape. Whereas like other people like Storm and Colossus who haven't had like such white bread backgrounds are kind of like buying into it and being like, well, if this is what we're going to be from now on, we might as well do it and like that sort of thing. And then eventually we see kind of Sabretooth walking through this area where there's like all these prison cells where the X-Men and the other mutants that are part of weapon X are being kept as like prisoners. You know, it's like the pens uh, we see Sabretooth walking through with a bunch of weapon X guards and they're dragging beast along with them. And we don't know what happened to beast, but now we see that beast has turned blue and he's furry. So, Ultimate beast turned blue and furry by weapon X, not through like selfish manipulation and experimentation. Um, and then that takes us into uh, like the, the crux of the whole storyline. Like this is, this is going to be this, the part of the story that kind of sets the rest of the storyline up and like leads us to our conclusion. So after we see beast as blue, we actually cut to like a two part mission. And we see that members of Weapon X and members of the X-Men have been teamed up together into like two different strike forces. So like one of them is uh, Cyclops and Jean and Storm and Nightcrawler. And then the other one is like Juggernaut and Rogue and Colossus and Beast. So you have like four on one team, four on the other, but they're, it's not like the gold and blue team, but it's just, it's, you know, the whole separate team, separate mission kind of deal. And the X-Men are going, like I said, they're going on two missions. Uh, one of the missions is to stop this train and the other mission. And and the part is awesome because Colossus, they just like drop him from this helicopter. And as he's falling, he like steals up. He lands on the train track and just like punches the lead train car and the whole train. And it's this big, long train. It's like miles long and just crashes. It actually reminds me a lot in the first Avengers movie where Hulk punches that Leviathan in the street of New York and the whole thing just kind of like flips over. Uh, Colossus does that to this massive train looks really cool. Awesome scene. And then we cut to the other team and they have a separate mission. They're like infiltrating this base. And the very last page is it's like a one page scene and it's Wolverine. Now he's in Canada. So he's no longer in the desert. He's in Canada now in the snow. And he just has this look on his face. Like he knows what's going on. And he's really mad, but it's never really explained like how or why he knows what's going on. But that takes us into part four, which is ultimate X-Men number 10. So we get the, like, we see the, uh, the secondary team, the team that infiltrated the base. We see a couple more scenes with them. Um, you know, getting further into this base. We don't know what base they're at or what their mission is, but we see them like just taking out guards and stuff. And they're working as this well-oiled machine. It's actually really cool. If you didn't have this like awful feeling that whatever they were doing was something really sinister. Then it cuts to another Nick Fury interlude. This time is while he is uh, like being held captive. So whatever happened to him at the end of the mission in the last issue Apparently he was taken captive. And so this scene is like him talking to his captors, but then it actually catches up to real time and team one actually comes in and they save Nick Fury and team two um, completes the mission of whatever, whatever base they infiltrated. Eventually we learned that it was like, it was to take out a scientist who had also been doing mutant experimentation but was doing it in like a really grotesque way. Um, And we actually kind of see, it's very similar, like they're almost suicide squatted, you know, the good X-Men. Obviously the good X-Men aren't going to do these evil things that Weapon X wants them to do. So Weapon X uh, blackmails them by saying like, all right, well, look, you don't want to do what we want you to do. Well, you have these chips in your brain and and we'll explode them. So basically they're turned into like Task Force X, uh, which is fitting since, you know, X-Men and all that. Um, and Wraith actually makes Jean gray use her telepathic abilities to pretty much turn off the brain of this one main scientist and it messes her up. It messes all the X-Men up because this, like things have gotten real now, like up to this point, they're just taking out weird soldiers. No big deal. But like now they're just like taking out scientists. The scene then changes and we actually see a scene of Weapon X capturing Wolverine. Now, I like a dummy, I didn't write down where this scene is taking place, but I think this scene was taking place like in Canada. So I think when we saw Wolverine in the woods in Canada at the end of the last issue, he had this look on his face like he was really angry, and we kind of get to see that like Wolverine in Canada I think was ambushed. Um, and so he was actually taken without the X-Men there to kind of back him up and give him a hand. He was taken prisoner by weapon X. And then the last scene we see is a scene where like John Wraith is like kind of basically just celebrating himself and all of his success is like, we rescued Nick Fury. We destroyed the scientists, we captured Wolverine. And now, you know, isn't it great Charles? And, and we see Xavier pretty much like in a diaper, just connected to like this, just this evil cerebro. It actually has like all these red wires and stuff are coming off them. It actually reminds me a lot of, of the way that they would like mind wipe the mutates and the mutants in the extinction. No, is it the, yeah, the extinction agenda where they're in Genosha with Cameron Hodge in the 616 universe. I'm pretty sure it's the extinction agenda when they're, like I said, when they're in Genosha anyway, like that's what it kind of calls back to me. It's like Xavier almost looks like Cameron Hodge with just all of these wires and stuff just plugged into all these different parts of his skull and everything. Um, And that's how part four ends. So that takes us into part five, which of course is ultimate X-Men number 11. It actually starts with a flashback in Kuwait 10 years ago. So if this was in 2001, 2002, this would have been like at the height of desert storm, which makes sense why it's happening in Kuwait. And basically at this point, Nick Fury is just a regular soldier. He's not part of S.H.I.E.L.D. yet. He's not a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent. Um, so I have to assume that this is like the ultimate version of the Howling Commandos, who instead of being in World War II at this point, you know, since everything was accelerated, uh, they were a, a military unit like during the, the first Gulf War. Uh, but things don't go well for Fury, and he's actually rescued by Wolverine. The flashback ends. We're taken to a different scene. This time we're taken to like Shield headquarters. And uh, Wraith is on the phone and he's talking to like, I guess the the equivalent of like the Joint Chiefs of Staff, whoever's in charge of Shield in the ultimate universe. And he's kind of trying to plead his case. like everything's going well. We got Fury back. We killed the scientists. like we got Wolverine. We have all of our ducks in a row. like, we're ready like make us the main thing. And they're like, no, we're actually going to shut weapon X down. Turns out that like the international community frowns upon the things that you guys do. So we're going to move in a different direction. Probably this ultimate thing that Nick Fury is talking about, you know, whatever, but not what you want. And so Wraith uses Xavier, who's connected to this weird evil cerebro machine to, uh, to kill all the joint chiefs of staff guys, to take out like the entire leadership group of shield, which would then make John Wraith the highest ranking shield agent and would make weapon X the most important program in shield. So then we cut to another scene. Like now things are like really starting to heat up. And now we see, uh, it's a whole scene with like Sabretooth torturing Wolverine. He has like Wolverine's file and all of his uh, background information. He's kind of telling him like, you know, we hear, I heard that you've been trying to figure out your past. Well, I have your entire past right here in this folder. And he throws it on like a Weber grill, like one of those cheap little charcoal grills and lights it on fire. And like Wolverine kind of goes nuts, but there's not really much that Wolverine could do about it. Cause he's kind of like chained down being held down by all these various shield agents or weapon X agents and, and whatnot. And Sabretooth is just like relishing this moment of pure sadism and interspersed with this scene is um, scenes between like Dr. Cornelius and John Wraith when they're like, Hey, where's Wolverine? And Wraith is like, oh, Sabretooth's got him out in the woods and he's messing with him and stuff. And Cornelius is like, well, I have some bad news. Um, we did some x-rays and we did some, you know, scans and whatnot when we first got Wolverine back. And we just noticed just now an abnormality in his like abdomen. And Wraith is like, what are you talking about? Show me. And so Cornelius sends him like these photos of, I don't know if it's an ultrasound or an x-ray or, or what, Um, And Wraith is looking at him and he's like, oh my gosh, you idiots is a tracking device. And like almost immediately when he says tracking device, all the power in the weapon X base in Finland, it all goes out. All the power goes out. All the chips that are controlling the good X-Men, everything's short circuited. So the X-Men are out of their cages and they're about to start some crap. And this, like we get one last page that shows how it ends And it turns out the Brotherhood has showed up. The Brotherhood was working with Wolverine to get the X-Men out of the Weapon X facility. So we actually see Scarlet Witch and we see Quicksilver and Toad and Blob and Mastermind and they've all arrived. And that's the end of part five. That takes us into part six. So part six picks up right where part five left off with Wolverine and Sabretooth kind of fighting. I probably should have said that like at the end of part five, Wolverine starts laughing when Sabretooth is torturing him. And he's like, you think I would have come here without a plan? And then it led to the power outage. So either way. So now Sabretooth is like really ticked off that Wolverines laughing at him and stuff. And he's not afraid of him. So Sabretooth grabs Wolverine and kind of lets him up, you know, and he's challenging him to a fight and he pops his claws, saber tooth. Um, (laughs) and he's got four claws on each hand. So he's got one claw in between, you know, each of the fingers kind of like Wolverine does. And then he's got one more claw, like in between his, it's either on the outside of his pinky finger or in between his, uh, index and thumb. I want to say it's like the outside of his pinky finger. And I got to say like four claws looks dumb. (laughs) <laughs> it looks dumb on Sabretooth here. It looked dumb on Romulus way back in the, uh, Wolverine origins and Endings series. Like four claws just looks dumb. Three claws, two claws. Uh, even if they're arranged weirdly, like Dakens, uh, they look good. Uh, even one claw, like Gabby looks fine, but like, yeah, four claws is just, it's a little too much. It looks kind of dumb either way. Uh, Sabretooth and Wolverine have like this big battle. They're kind of slashing each other up and everything. Sabretooth at one point is like, holding Wolverine under the water because there's a river right there and you just hear like a snicked sound coming from under the water and (laughs) Wolverine popped his claws like right into Sabretooth's mommy daddy button. And he just like fall off this like waterfall. It then cuts to, you know, the X-Men and the brotherhood and like they're fighting their way out and they're teaming up and everything. And they're taking out weapon X guards and shield guards left and right but eventually it gets to a point where the brotherhood is like on the verge of killing some of these bad guys. And some of the X-Men are now kind of like, yeah, I understand like Cyclops and storm and, and Colossus who obviously with Colossus, like being in the mafia earlier, kind of doesn't really have like an aversion to killing. Um, you know, unlike his, uh, six, one, six counterpart, who's very peaceful despite the fact that even like six, one, six Colossus had to kill like Proteus and, and stuff either way. Uh, so there's like this big debate suddenly that breaks out between the brotherhood and some of the X-Men and like Jean Grey and Jean Grey's like, look, I had to because of what weapon X made me do. And like, I can't live with that. Like I, I can't let anyone else t- take that upon themselves and try to live with it either. So there's like this big discussion, uh, John Wraith actually like takes advantage of the fact that suddenly the X-Men and the Brotherhood are like fighting among each other to get in his helicopter and try to leave. Um, and half of the of the bad guy team, or I shouldn't say bad guy team, but like half of the Brotherhood and, and these other X-Men are like trying to take this helicopter out. And like Gene is trying to stop him. Iceman actually is like supporting Gene and he's like, no, we can't become killers even if they've tried to turn us into that we can't let it happen and storm's like you know to hell with that and so she like she flies up in the sky and just lets loose with just this massive lightning strike that strikes this helicopter and you think that all the shield agents all the weapon x agents and john wraith on on board this flight this helicopter like died but no we see like at the last minute before the lightning strikes like nightcrawler the member of Weapon X, you know, he teleports into the helicopter and grabs Wraith and teleports out and says something in German. And Storm's like, what are you saying? Like, I don't understand what you're saying, but you know, luckily Quicksilver's there. And since Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch grew up as Romani and kind of lived in areas of Europe that would speak German, they know what he said. And, and Quicksilver just tells Storm like, he said that you know John Wraith has turned a lot of people a lot of people into killers, but Nightcrawler is not gonna let someone as beautiful and sweet as Storm become one because John Wraith decided to turn her into one, uh, which I thought was really cool. Like even though we have this version of Nightcrawler that seems like pretty dark and like pretty, you know, I've turned into a killer, I'm cold-blooded now, we still see that like he still has that that heart inside of him, uh, which made 616 Nightcrawler such a lovable character as well. So I love that, uh, even in the ultimate universe, so many characters are different and they take a lot of characters in like opposite ways. It's still kind of nice to see that even how, how different characters can be, they still keep them the same. They still keep to that core. And we got to see that with Nightcrawler in this scene. And then before uh, Wraith can escape again, but before like the Brotherhood or any of the other members of Weapon X like Rogue or Juggernaut can kill Wraith, uh, Nick Fury shows up out of nowhere and and kills him. And he's like, you know, I have good news and I have bad news. Uh, the good news is that we know that Wraith is a bad guy. Um, the bad news is like there's not really anything we can do about it. We're going to let you go. Like have fun getting back to New York. New York. See ya. Like, we're not going to hold any of you accountable for what weapon X made you do, but uh, you're kind of on your own. Peace out. And Nick Fury just leaves uh, and, and the X-Men and the Brotherhood part ways. And I think Rogue and Nightcrawler go along with the X-Men. I think Juggernaut goes off on his own. And of course, we don't really know the whereabouts of Ultimate Sabretooth at this point. And that, that's how the arc ends. Um, They all just kind of go their separate ways because of their various ideologies and how they conflict. Uh, uh, But it mostly has like a bright, happy ending, like Weapon X is over. Nick Fury is now director of S.H.I.E.L.D. And uh, he then goes on to create the Ultimates in in the comic book series called The Ultimates, also written by Mark Miller. Um, And then the rest of the X-Men go home with two new members in Rogue and Nightcrawler. So like overall, just a really great storyline. In my opinion, it's probably the strongest, the best of all the uh, ultimate X-Men from Mark Miller. I know some people would probably say like Return of the King, which was like the second Magneto storyline, perhaps even like Hellfire and Brimstone, which was like his version of Dark Phoenix, uh, which was actually very similar to uh, the adaptation of the Dark Phoenix that they did in Wolverine and the X-Men. Uh, But either way, like just a a strong series, probably my favorite series from Miller and Kubert's ultimate X-Men run. And I mean, tell me that isn't like, take this storyline, splash in, take out Wraith and splash in Striker and add in just, just a hint of the political and socio commentary from God loves man kills. And that gives you X Two. Even like with the storm and the, the nightcrawler, Sequence and all that, like even even that is is very similar. So, um, I like it. So that is it. That is Ultimate X Men seven through twelve. Return to Weapon X. So, bubs, that does it for today's episode of Talking Snicked. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I do. I'm so glad to be back behind this mic again, talking Wolverine, talking X-Men, talking about storylines that I really love and enjoy, and I hope that you all love and enjoy these storylines and these episodes as much as I do. Now, I mentioned in the special Cap Wolf episode that as of right now, I'm not doing any kind of return uh, with any kind of like recording schedule or release schedule, I do know that regular Talking and Snicked episodes will still be coming out on Wolverine Wednesdays, but I'm not saying every Wednesday or every other Wednesday, maybe not even every three Wednesdays. I'm just going to play by ear, and when I feel like recording episodes about Wolverine and the X-Men, I'm going to, and I'm going to release them on this feed, so don't go anywhere. With that being said, I am am planning to bring back Saturday morning Snicktoons and continue talking about X-Men, the animated series. I left off covering Night of the Sentinels part one, which was season one, episode one. And I will be coming back at you this Saturday with Night of the Sentinels part two. Now I am looking to change the format of the show from a host show to a host guest host format, where I will be bringing on fellow X-Men podcasters, or X-Men cosplayers, X-Men collectors, X-Men, you know, merch makers. If you make t-shirts or stickers or any kind of X-Men stuff, like I want you on, I want to talk to you and I want to talk to you about X-Men, the animated series. Now I've already been hard at work getting guests lined up and I have almost the rest of season one booked and scheduled and I'm pretty excited about it. So more to come on that but make sure even if i'm not releasing what episodes every wednesday make sure you keep this feed in your subscriptions so that you can get new saturday morning snick every saturday hopefully from now until the end of november which should cover all the way through x-men the animated series season one now bubs if you like the episode and want to keep the conversation going you can reach out to me on Instagram at talkinsnicked, or you can send me an email, talksnicked at gmail.com. That is T-A-L-K-S-N-I-K-T at gmail.com. If you like the music in the episode at the very end, then make sure you go check out Retcon X. He is a musician who created a bunch of original music inspired by the X-Men. And this track at the very end here, Back from the Dead, was one created, especially in tribute of Wolverine. I really love the music. He's got a couple of EPs out there, and it's really worth checking out. Check him out on Spotify. Now, if you're super excited that I'm back and you can't get your fill, then go check out this other podcast that I've been on pretty regularly over the summer. It's called Marvel plus by my buddy, Brett Scott in that series, he breaks down all of the weekly Disney plus MCU connected series episodes right now. All of his episodes that are coming out are about the current what if show, and I've been on four episodes up to this point with plans to be on more. So go check out that show. Bubs, that is all I have to say. I hope you are all doing well. Can't wait to get more episodes to ya. Until next time, Bubs.